Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Dr. Mike Austin, who's Professor of Philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. Uh, and he's written on a whole host of things related to different aspects of philosophy and Christian faith, but it recently has ventured into a new area for him. Uh, and I think you'll be very interested to hear this conversation today. It's his, his new book is just out entitled God and Guns in America. Uh, and so it's a, it's a Christian approach to the whole gun control debate. So, Mike, welcome. Thanks for being with us. And thank you especially for wading into this uh, not very controversial area. Yeah, not at all. No, thank you for having me. I think it is controversial and we're, we're not making much progress. So, yeah, we need to now try to do that. As a philosopher, you've written about a lot of things related to family, parenting, virtue ethics, some really good stuff relating virtue ethics to Christian faith. Why did you decide to write about guns? Yeah, I came across, it wasn't intentional, I just came across some arguments, really actually on both sides, that I thought were sorely lacking, like they're just mistaken and weak, both from sort of the extreme, let's repeal the Second Amendment folks, on the other side where they're there should just be absolutely zero restrictions. And I saw, you know, there's a lot of people use cliches and slogans, and there's just not a lot of really substantive argument going on. A lot of talking past each other happens in our culture on this issue. And I think that happens in the church as well. And so some I found people in the church using the same kind of slogans, maybe appealing to a Bible verse here or there, where I thought this really clearly has nothing to do with, you know, violence or guns. And so I wanted to weigh in. And yeah, I thought there really was no book-length substantial treatment of this from a Christian ethical point of view. And especially, I wanted to write the kind of book that, that wouldn't be for other scholars, but for people who just were interested in thinking about it biblically. And uh, I, I think that I've been able to do that and give people some like ways to approach it and think through it themselves. Now, you've got, you've got your own background with guns. I mean, you yeah. grew up with guns. Tell I me, mean, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I grew up in Kansas, and so I didn't really know that you did, you grew up without guns. Right? That was just the norm. <laughs> um, and so we, we didn't live out on a farm or anything, but my dad is a big, that's a big part of his his recreational life. So, you know, I, I mentioned in the preface of the book that I owned a gun before I was born because <laughs> while I, my mom was pregnant with me, I was their first child. My dad bought a, for four dollars a twenty two caliber rifle uh, for me, and so before up, you were born, before I was born, yeah. <laughs> right, so he was, you know, he was ready. Um, and then you know, over the years growing up, we he mainly was involved, and I did it with him. My brother and I like trap and skeet shooting, sporting clays. We would go hunting like waterfowl, and so that was just a normal part of growing up. We had there was a gun cabinet in our family room. I mean, I had a little lock on it, but. That, that wasn't odd to me at all. It was just kind of normal. Um, so yeah, I grew up around them. You describe what's called the American myth about guns and America's founding days. Can you describe what that myth is and why you felt it was so important to address it in your book? Yeah, we're shaped so much, our views of American history, less by the history itself sometimes and more by you know media, the movies. I mean, look, my, one of my favorite movies is Tombstone. All right. Great yeah, I mean, how can you not quote Doc Holliday? <laughs> but, um, but we tend to see those kind of this sort of the Wild West, the shootouts, everybody having guns as normative. As, and yeah, that was part of the story. But most people weren't getting in shootouts. Guns had more to do with hunting and provision, and they were present. 
but they didn't have this mystique and sort of emotional value until much later. Um, and so while they were there, they weren't as ubiquitous as people thought. And really, you know, gun companies like the Winchester Gun Company, their market was primarily international markets and government contracts. And so after the Civil War, some of these gun industrialists actually went out of business because they didn't have those contracts. Um, so, so is this important because a lot of Christians or even non-Christians will defend a certain view of guns in America thinking they're defending America, but it's not quite as simple. Yeah, that's right. And so it's that, you know, they think they're part of the Revolutionary War, which they were, but but guns are, are more tightly connected in people's hearts and minds with our founding and our history than sort of the, the evidence shows, right? You would think that everybody owned a gun, and if I was a gun industrialist, I'd be making money hand over fist where that just wasn't the case. Now, Mike, you, to, to go a little bit further with that, uh, you you state in your book that one of the connections that's often made between the advocacy for guns with Christian faith and patriotism, which you call Christian nationalism, uh, you know, is, is sometimes pretty significant. Uh, but that sort of Christian nationalism makes you nervous. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit why that's the case. Yeah, I mean, that, these days that's a really loaded term, and it's it's a spectrum of things, right? So there there's some people who want you know want a theocracy, right? And uh, that really, I mean, some of those people I have in mind, which, I, which means which means right, just yeah, like a Christian run, like the Christians would run the government according right, to the, Old Testament. Yeah, the law of God is the law of the land. Exactly. There's no dis- um, distinction between those. Yeah. So, but I think mo- what I in a more everyday basis, I think. Christians and we often can associate, we, we think being an American is intrinsically connected, right, to being a Christian. And that's not the case, right? You, there are Americans who aren't Christians, Christians who aren't Americans. And that might seem obvious, but there's a lot of sort of identity that gets wrapped up. So like, whether it's in Kansas or, I, you know, I teach in Kentucky, some people, there's this sort of family tradition where patriotism, the Christian faith and guns are sort of this, they're intertwined with each other. And... I'm a little concerned about that and the way that it plays out. So when, when Christians appeal to the Second Amendment in a, the same way they might appeal to like a passage of Scripture, that worries me. Because, of course, and I don't mm-hmm. think they really think it's on par with the Bible, but they kind of think that settles the moral and spiritual issue. It settles the legal issue, given different interpretations, but as Christians, that's not the final word for us. And the other thing I worry about is we tend to, we have to have as our core identity— not being not an American, not a gun owner, but a Christian. And I'm a, I mean, patriotism is a good thing. I'm incredibly grateful to, you know, the more you learn about the world and the history of the world, how fortunate we are to be in America and the rule of law and the things we have. But I want Christians to be able to speak prophetically to the state. I want the church to be the conscience of the state in a certain way, not just to become a, a tool of, of it. So. So you talked about the conflation between Scripture and the Second Amendment. Let's come back to Scripture, but let's start with the Second Amendment. Sometimes I hear people quote it as if that ends the debate, Second Amendment. So tell us, uh, for clarity and reminder, what is the Second Amendment, and what can we actually draw from that, historically speaking, and today? For the use of guns. Right. And of course, unsurprisingly, the interpretations are controversial, right? Okay. Um, I, would, I think, you know, the, what is the second amendment? The right to keep and bear arms. Well, I don't have it memorized. Um, 
But yeah, basically the the controversy is to put in sort of contemporary terms, does it protect an individual right to own guns or a collective right? And so for really until 2000, and I didn't know this until I started doing the research, until 2008, the Supreme Court generally found it was a collective right. So either the right of the militia to be armed or in some sort of communal sense to have arms. Hmm. But in the 2008 decision, um, the Heller decision in D.C., and then followed up by a 2010 decision in Chicago, the Supreme Court explicitly stated the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a gun for the purpose of self-defense. But it had never said that for 200, you know, until that time. Um, and so the controversy, of course, is it's choppy. Like the grammar of the Second Amendment is not as clear as the other amendments. And I'm not, you know, a constitutional expert. Sure. So what I do in the book is just say, here's what people think about it. Here's where the legal situation is. And look, it's uncontroversial legally. In the United States, the Second Amendment says we've got an individual right to own guns. What I'm more focused on in the book is, you know, is, is there a moral right? What does that mean for Christians? Those kind of things. So you would you would maintain that there is a, an individual legal right to own a gun? Yeah, I mean that just seems you can just quote okay. the Supreme Court. That's what they found. And I think know? I think you can actually make a make a pretty decent argument that even around the time of the founders, you know, I mean, guns were totally different back then than they are today. I mean, they were basically single-shot muskets, and they, there was no such thing as a, a assault rifle right. in the, found, the founding days. And I think you can make a case that, uh, you know, for a militia to actually be effective, you had to have individuals who were, you know, who were skilled at handling a gun mm-hmm. and had ready access to it. If, we're, if they're going to mobilize quickly. That's right. So I think the, the idea, it, it, it seems to me is that's not an either-or prop proposition, that it's either for a militia to, uh, to have access to arms or an individual. I think for a militia to be effective, individuals have to have access and skill as well. Yeah, that's, I would agree um, with that, yeah. But I think what I'm more, more interested in is the moral mm-hmm. argument. Uh, so the legality aside... Uh, what's the moral argument for gun ownership, if if there if indeed there is one? Yeah, this is something I I really I would argue there is a moral right to own a gun, and and you know as as for Christians, our rights are ultimately grounded in the fact that we're made in God's image, that certain things, you know, because we have dignity, we should have certain freedoms, certain interests that we have that generate rights. So in in the book and in my actual view is of course. That we there is a right to own a gun, in, in the American context at least, and other ones as a means. It's you know it's what philosophers call means right, meaning it, the right to own a gun serves as a means to some further good or interest I have. So the obvious one that jumps to mind is as self defense, right? So the, in many situations, in order to really defend myself, right, I have a right to choose whether or not I want to have a gun available to do that, the, to defend other vulnerable people, right? So defend my, my family, for example. Um, and I would argue, I think this is something that many people that aren't familiar really with, with the role of guns in many people's lives discount, but I think you, it's a weaker basis for the right to own and use a gun, but I think just the roles that, the role guns play in recreation, right? I mean, in terms of just a liberty to, you know, go hunting or go target shooting or, you know, like I grew up trapping skeet. I think it's easy for people who aren't around that to discount it. But then if their favorite recreational activity was taken away mm-hmm. because, well, this might harm people, then they would 
be upset. So we want to want to respect the, all those things. I think can generate a right to own a gun, a moral right. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I would think most Americans would agree with that sentiment and say, okay, you can own a gun, but why an AR-15 or why these kinds of guns? Even my wife has asked me that. She's like, I get it, but why does a normal person have to have that gun? Mm-hmm. What would that look like, whether you hold that position or not, to make a moral defense of the right to hold such a gun as an AR-15 or so? Yeah, and that's that's where you can really... It's actually a really difficult thing to give a definition of an assault weapon, right? Hmm. And I think that's a term that gets thrown around. And so, I, you know, I've talked to people who, so I, who, have, who have AR-15s, the guy I know who's... I think it's a ranch or a farm where he uses it to defend his sheep, the sheep he has from coyotes, right? Okay. And so, and a friend of mine is a military veteran. He talks about AR-15s aren't really that efficient. Like you wouldn't want to go into combat with one of those. But nevertheless, the, a lot of the mass shootings are using that using that gun. So there's something about it that's drawing people, and it is efficient. Yeah, it's small, smaller caliber, these kind of things. So I would, I mean, my my own view, and I. I don't give one in a book. We need to come up with some kind of, we need, there's going to be a line. What kind of arms are going to allow people to have? Maybe it's AR-15. Right now it's fully automatic weapons that were made, you know, to, to have a machine gun, it has to be made before 1976. If I'm getting my facts straight and, sure. and it's really expensive. So that's why we don't have a lot of those, but I don't see a need for large magazine, easily fire multiple shots kind of weapons um, so I'd want magazine limits things like that so we're getting, getting into kind of the details but I think there has to be a line if there's no line then sure. I should be able to park a tank and an anti-aircraft <laughs> gun and I've talked to people who say yeah well, we should yeah, yeah of course so okay. I, I just talked to a philosophy professor who's an anarchist who was like yeah if this government can have it then we okay. should have it but I don't but look we have there I kind of think the rest of us have rights not to have some guy down the street have chemical weapons or a tank or an RPG. Um, so we've got to yeah, yeah it's going to be hard. We've got there's got to be a limit and we need to hash that out. So you've made a moral defense namely for self-defense or for recreation. Mm-hmm. How about a theological approach to this? Would it overlap? Would it be the same one? Would you draw from any examples or passages within the scripture? How would scripture itself add to the question of the morality of owning a gun? Yeah, this is where I think people often misuse scripture. So over and over again, the most common verse that people use is Luke 22, 35 to 38, where Jesus says, you know, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And so... I've heard people say sword and arc and that culture equals handgun in this culture, and that settles it. But I think that, look, the passage itself, the first time I read it, it seemed obvious to me because it, the passage from Deuteronomy is quoted as a fulfillment of Scripture, right? A prophecy that Jesus would be counted among the transgressors. So they say, we have two swords. He says, that's enough. And we see that's what happened, right? They were counted as lawbreakers. Um, but more generally, on the positive moral side, I think... You know, there are instances in the Old Testament uh, where where the people were told to be armed guards to protect the temple, where self-defense is allowed. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, and then what's the, the other one? In, in Esther, yeah. the Jews are allowed to arm themselves to prevent gen- mm-hmm. genocide that yeah. was about to take place. Right, mm-hmm. so I think in principle, it looks like to me, self-defense, there's, there's a theological justification for arming yourself for the sake of self-defense. Mm. Um, 
there, of course there will be limits, but uh, now of course there are pacifists who disagree and people who want to take that farther than I would, but, sure. but it looks like that's there. So in the Luke passage, it does seem to me a sword, it does seem to be a sword that's for self-defense. Is that accurate, your understanding of that passage? I would argue it's not. I would argue that it's that the pet that it's to that they would be armed, and and that made them transgressors of the of the Roman law, um, and so because of that it says he will be counted among the transgressors. That is quoted right after. It seems to me it's given as a justification for having swords. Um, I don't think the context is self-defense. I think the context is fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Oh, okay. That's, gotcha. That's what I'm arguing. So that makes sense. Not everybody agrees with that, of course. But, okay. But I think. I think in the Got context it. of Luke and generally, and then of course you look later and Jesus you know, okay. tells Peter to put his sword away and those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So Got we need it. to take all those things into, into account. There are some arguments about it that I think as self-defense that have a little more weight, but yeah, for me, I come down on the side, this is about prophecy, not about gotcha. harming yourself. Now, Mike, you said a little bit earlier that you've observed you know, on both sides of the gun control debate, lots of dubious claims being mm-hmm. made. That just aren't true. Right. Can you give us an example, maybe of one on each side? Yeah, that's good. There's, I basically, I devote a whole chapter to this in the book um, because I think in the culture these are the things that get put about. So one would be the claim that violence never solves anything, and, and I mean in that is put that strongly. But of, but of course it does. I mean violence can beget more violence. It can. We know it can just mushroom and can cause chaos and suffering. But law enforcement officials use violence to stop criminal violence. Violence was used to end the Holocaust. Violence was used to overthrow a brutal dictatorship in Romania. Violence was used to, in, on 9-11 to keep the hijackers of Flight 93 from killing larger numbers of people. So, so that's one, I think. It doesn't mean we should just always turn to violence, but the myth that violence never does anything good is just, is just demonstrably false, right? And in a fallen world, unfortunately, that's what happens. On the other side, I think, oh, you know, it's not a gun problem, it's a sin problem, because that's one that Christians bring up. Hmm. And I understand that, right? The, the point is, guns don't do anything, right? Someone, a, a sinful person has to pick them up with sinful intentions to do something. But I think that's, it's like, a, it's a false dichotomy, right? It's either the heart or the gun, right? And I want to say, well, they're both involved, right? That... Yeah, you know, people said, well, look, Cain killed, killed Abel with a rock, or is it the other way around? <laughs> yeah, you got <laughs> it. Yeah, all right, good. <laughs> um, so are we going to ban rocks? Well, no. But the problem with a gun is that, look, I think from a, a, an evangelical perspective, a biblical point of view about the fallenness of human nature, guns enable people who are sinful to, like, kill larger numbers of people more efficiently, right? And so I want to—there's going to be no fix-it, right? But—or, you know, absolute solution to this problem. But if we can reduce gun violence, if we can make it more difficult for people with a fallen sinful heart to express that sinful heart through the barrel of a gun, so Mm. to speak, we should do that. Um, One of the phrases we hear that you hinted at earlier is, guns don't kill people— people do yeah your thoughts on that one yeah right so guns it's that yes people that's true but people kill people with guns right so <laughs> even you know back in the, the Newtown shooting in Connecticut the many you know the large number of students and, and teachers that were killed that day on that same day there was a knife attack at a school in China right. but no one died that day 
All right. Now, I'm not, you know, there are issues with the knives in the UK, for example, and you know all these things that come up. But at the end of the day, if, if my kids in a, a school or if I'm you know in the university I teach, somebody comes into the room with a gun or a knife, I'm going to want the with evil intentions. I'd rather have face the guy with a knife, right? Because he has less ability to do great harm. So I think that it's true, but both are true. So, you know, it means we have to do what we can to reduce gun violence, maybe with laws and policy, but also in ministry to our communities so that people who feel a need to turn to violence, you know, not just mental health, but people who just are desperate, you know, get their needs met and and really just come to Christ and, and, Hmm. and find what they need. So, Mike, uh, without getting too much into the public policy weeds on this, but imagine you were king for a day and could write gun laws however you wanted to. How would you how would you write them in a way that 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 would be respectful of the Second Amendment and the moral right to own a gun, but would prevent some of these abuses that you're concerned about? Yeah, and I think that's the key. We want to balance the right the moral and legal right to own a gun with the rights of innocent people to have the you know their right to life, the right to bodily security, the right to go to church, to school, to the movies without being shot. But I think, so I would start with universal background checks, right? I think people can get around that. They'll, they'll be able to subvert it, but not everybody, right? We'll, we'll tighten the net a little bit. So I just, that's one thing I would do. One thing that I think is even more important and probably would be more effective, and there's evidence for this, they're called extreme risk protection orders or more everyday language, mm-hmm. red flag laws. So that that's a law that would enable would enable like family members, police officers, medical professionals, pe- you know, teachers at a school to to basically contact police and then this person is a danger to themselves or others and they have access to firearms. Police initially would remove the guns and then soon after there would be a hearing. And so if somebody has a mental health issue or somebody, you know, it comes out, yes, this person's got intent to, you know, shoot up a school or maybe there's a domestic violence issue, they lose the ability or they lose access to their guns. In the mental health one, maybe they get treatment and they can, you know, some laws they can get them back a year later. I would argue somebody that's guilty of domestic violence and finds they are a danger, they might, you know, they have access to a gun and are planning on using it, I would want them to lose access for a long time, maybe even permanently, because I mm. think there's there's some issues there that that's a big problem. So the extreme risk protection orders, those have been tried in places like Maryland. In one, I don't know if it's a six-month period of time, there were 301 of these. Five of those were school shootings that were... Potentially, I mean, that didn't happen, right? So, so I think that's helpful. I would argue. I mean, there are a lot of other things. This one isn't really public policy, although you could craft some policy to do it. But I would love to see looking to technological solutions, right? That like smart gun technology or smart gun safe technology. One problem. Spell, spell out what that what that means. Yeah. So that would be. So you can get a safe right now. The, if, let's so people want quick access to guns. If guns in a gun safe, and I've got to like do the combination and get it out. There's somebody in my house. Well, that's not going to be as effective if I'm trying to defend myself or my family. Smart safe might be biometric or like a yeah, like a fingerprint key, or a, a, you might mm. have on your on your keychain an RFID tag that's connected to the lock. Uh, there are trigger locks. I just saw a video of this. 
where it's so it, it's on a handgun, you can't fire it because it's locked around the trigger. But I I press my thumb on it and it falls away. I mean, like nearly instantly. Wow! Right? So there's not a there's not this time lag. What that does is it it keeps kids from being able, which is a problem, getting access to guns and because they aren't safely stored and hurting themselves or others. If someone steals a gun, it's going to be a lot harder to use it because you can't. You know, you, you don't have the the biometrics to get access to it. So I think those things are important. I would love to see. Look, we have incredible ability technologically. What what if Christians who are concerned about self defense and defending vulnerable people invested time and thought and money into really effective but non lethal means of self defense? Hmm. And I'm not saying you know a taser is going to solve it, but but something else, right? Something we maybe we haven't thought of where we can defend ourselves. But it takes seriously the fact that even the worst among us, criminals, are people made in God's image. And if, mm. if we could prevent them from doing violence while also letting them stay alive and perhaps, you know, be redeemed, um, that's, that's a worthwhile project. Those are really thoughtful ways we can, uh, we can approach this. You also talk about the connection between the use of guns and character mm. and virtue. Can you talk about that connection a little bit? Yeah, this is something I'm interested in because... Look, here's where it looks. It looks like people talk about gun culture 1.0, and it was primarily about recreation, hunting. But in the past 20 to 30, maybe 40 years, there's been a major shift. There's what some sociologists call gun culture 2.0, where rather than recreation, the focus of gun ownership is self-defense and what you might call armed citizenship. And so people engage really in the same kind of training that, mili- that the military adopted. You know, in World War One, the firing rate was 15 to 20 percent. There's evidence that soldiers just either didn't fire their guns or they fired over their enemies. And at first, I, I was like so skeptical because this isn't in the war movies I've seen. But, but um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but this kind of this is kind of the kind of stuff. This comes from a book called On Killing that I recently read. That actually is it's required reading for Marine Commandant School and, and Naval, um, not the Naval Academy, but anyway, the military is like aware of this. Military training changed, and so in Korea it went up to fifty-five percent, in Vietnam it was ninety to ninety-five percent. Wow. And the way it changed was rather than a bullseye target on a hill, you put people in situations where where like a, a human-shaped target pops up, and you get that quick response. That's militarily effective. But it also creates almost a conditioned response, right, where I, I shoot another human being before I even think about what I'm doing, right? It's a, it's a, react, a reflex almost. Well, Gun Culture 2.0, a lot of that training is similar, right? So there are, there are drills where you're in an urban area or, you know, targets not just human-shaped silhouettes, but targets with, like, actual photographs of human beings pop up. And so you're, you're going through shooting numerous times. So I think creating... A conditioned response where you're shooting without thought, coupled with really dehumanization. Now, you know we know that happens in war, where you know there's the enemy is seen as morally inferior and you know, their racial inferiority. It's not sometimes that's present in gun culture 2.0, but less, maybe not as bad as that. But there is a if you listen to some people, not all, but some people in that culture, they talk about they refer to criminals as wolves. People that don't have guns for self-defense are sheep, and then they're the sheepdogs who are protecting. So think about, you know, wolves are often this symbol or symbolic of evil, you know, and all those sorts of things. And so I think there really is a, if you have a dehumanization coupled with this conditioned response to really quickly fire your gun, 
there's evidence that that undermines empathy. And empathy is really mm. a foundational aspect of a lot of Christian character traits, compassion, kindness. I'm not saying that all soldiers have bad character or all gun sure, owners and sure. users, but we need to be really... I mean, the reason soldiers struggle, you know, my friend who was in combat in the Middle East, the reason he struggles is because of the things he did, right? And it's, mm. and, and it's not that he's a bad person for doing that. He paid a high price for us, but he struggled. And he's a good man, but he struggles with his flourishing is impacted by that, sure. right? And again, part of a fallen world. But my concern in Gun Culture 2.0 is that Christians embrace that language, that mindset, they brag about the stopping power of their new gun on Facebook or my wife just got this gun, don't mess with her, she'll put you down. I mean, those are sort of, we need to look at violence as regrettable, last resort, a terrible thing that sometimes might be called for to protect something of value. And if we normalize it and make it easy, I, I worry about our cultivation of the character traits of Christ, compassion. We're supposed to actually love our enemies, right? I mean, sometimes that means not allowing them to do something really evil, but sometimes that means, oh yeah, that guy is made in God's image, and if, if I have to do harm to him, that's a re- really regrettable thing. Yeah, morally justifiable, but regrettable at the same time. Exactly. So I don't think we often put those two things together mm-hmm. in a way that, that contributes to cultivating virtue like that. Mike, this has been so helpful. Really, we so appreciate a balanced approach, which takes the Second Amendment seriously, but doesn't claim it as an absolute. And takes a moral right, theologically, a right to own guns. But then again, that's not an absolute moral right either. There can be, you can have a moral right but have responsible limits on gun use and gun availability. Uh, that makes sense in, in culture today. But it's so well grounded theologically. I, 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 I so commend your book to our to our listeners. God and guns in America. It's the best thing out there that I've seen. I've done a lot of a lot of reading and study on guns. Uh, it's the best thing out there that takes it from a distinctly Christian worldview and really grounds it well theologically. You've done a great work in this, and we, com- we commend you for that and very much appreciate you coming on with us to tell us a little bit more about it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's been, yeah, it's been a fun and good discussion. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Mike Austin, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.